Open the Bible, please, with me to its last book. And the 19th chapter, Revelation 19. We just sang, even so, it is well with my soul. Even so is an adverb combination that is expressing that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as It was described in the last verse of that song, and as it's described in the last chapter of Revelation, is exactly what we believe, and is exactly what we're asking for. Even so, in exactly the way specified, come. And even so, it is well with my soul. Because of those promises, it should be well with our souls. The gospel is good news and glad tidings of wonderful things and has so much hope for those that it pertains to and for those who believe it and for those who are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. I trust that I am speaking in this assembly and to those who might hear it later, to those who hold and have the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the gospel. It is the record that Jesus testified of God, of us, of what He would do and some of those things He's already done and what He would do in things that He has yet to do. We have the record of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear witness of Him. Especially the preachers of the gospel have the testimony of Jesus because we defend All that Jesus said, all that Jesus is, all that Jesus, all that God did by Jesus for us and all that's held in store for us that He's promised to us. We have the testimony of Jesus. I want to read Revelation 19.10. Remember, God revealed to Jesus some things that were to come to pass and He sent, that is Jesus sent His angel to signify those things to John. There's four parties involved in the first verse of the epistle here. There's God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the angel messenger and John, who was on the Isle of Patmos, banished there by Domitian, the emperor of Rome. But we want this tenth verse because the angel's going to say something. John, verse 10 of Revelation 19, fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me very briefly say John saw this mighty angel that had delivered this magnificent revelation to him, and he fell at his feet to worship him. And the angel says, don't worship me, worship God. I am your fellow servant, and I am the fellow servant of all your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. And then he explains why only God should be worshipped and not him, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What I do in revealing... The prophecy of God 
is the same as what you're doing by having the testimony of Jesus. We are in the same business. We have the same content. We are on an equal level. Don't worship me. Worship God. Right. Because the testimony of Jesus is the preaching of the gospel and the spirit of prophecy was declaring additional items for that gospel to be preached. And so they were on somewhat of a equal par as the servants of God and this angel considered himself a fellow servant along with ministers of the gospel. That shouldn't surprise us then in the chapters 1 and 2 of this epistle that ministers are called angels. That's 19.10. If you come back to the 12th chapter, we find in the last verse, as a description is made of the church hiding in the wilderness for 1260 years, time and times and half a time, that's one plus two plus a half is three and a half. Three and a half in an annual calendar of 360 days is 1260. But here we read in the 17th verse, the dragon was wroth with the woman, that's the church of the Lord Jesus, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And here's the description of the true church of Jesus Christ, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. We declare and testify and defend and earnestly contend for everything that the Bible declares about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We testify of Jesus Christ. If we come all the way back to the first chapter, you'll find that this is a theme. The book of Revelation is a description of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over all his enemies. In the first verse, I want the third verse, excuse me. No, I want the second verse, excuse me twice. Revelation 1, 2, speaking of John, who is the last word of the first verse, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Notice that he bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus Christ said and promised, John bear record of God's word and of that testimony and of everything that he saw that the angel revealed to him. The ninth verse is similar. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you take a stand for the word of God and the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus you're going to be banished in one way or another by some few or more. It's the promise of God's word. And here it is. John was by himself banished to an island for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. I wrote you last evening in preparation for this day's worship and study of God's word from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23 where it tells us that... We are to continue in the faith, grounded and settled. There's nothing moving in the faith that we believe. It was given once to the apostles and it doesn't change. And it's been believed from them to our present day of nearly 2,000 years. We are to continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope 
of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. As I wrote you, we often go to this verse to prove the gospel had gone worldwide in the days of Paul's life, which is true. But we want a couple of other things. We first of all want to notice that if you'll connect this 23rd verse all the way up through the 21st verse, you'll find out that your salvation depends upon the evidence of you continuing in the faith. And that's what the verse is here for. If ye continue in the faith, then verses 21 and 22 are true about you. The other thing I want from this verse is it says that we don't want to be moved away from the faith of the gospel, the charity of the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. Because the gospel is full of hope. Because the gospel tells us about things that have not yet come to pass, that are going to come to pass, that are going to make your life infinitely better. Immeasurably better. Beyond your wildest imagination. Does the Bible defend me in that? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. Do you know what that does about your job? Do you know what that does about going to school? It puts it all in the shade. It's of such insignificance in comparison to what's going to be revealed in you, to you, and for you. And we must keep our priorities straight or we're the most ungrateful, disrespectful of the God of heaven who is our adopted father in all that he's preparing, prepared and will give us. In that great day that's coming. We don't want to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. We want to earnestly contend for it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the 15th verse, which is the one of the verses you read last evening as well, it says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Don't move. You be fastened in one place and do not move. Do not give on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Paul is saying, whether I preached it to you verbally, or whether you read it in one of my epistles, you stand fast and don't move from that. We are a church that believes in tradition. But the only tradition that we accept is the tradition of the apostles. And that's safe ground to stand upon. And you know what is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was not nearby, but was a distant event. And that is part of the traditions because it's therefore stand fast, brethren, and hold those traditions. It's a verse right here in context. Brethren, we are going to take ourselves a break from the epistle to the Romans and study an ism. And I don't do this very often, but by God's providence and by His leading, we are going to study the heresy called preterism. And we're going to answer it with the Word of God. And we're going to answer it a whole lot of different ways. And I hope that when we're done, and we're 90% of the way there, we will have a document to present to the world through our website that is going to provide people around the world all the Bible answers to blow the heresy of preterism to pieces. And that's the goal. It's another gospel. It's a damnable heresy. The Apostle Paul's going to identify it directly. 
It's got a founder. And so we call it by that founder's name. But I'm building my case and I'll share that with you momentarily. For those of you that are disappointed that I'm leaving Romans, you may take it up with the Lord. And if he's displeased with me, I'm sure he will let me know. I hope that you can see these possible benefits. Do you want to fight? Do you, do you want to fight the Lord's battles? Amen. I want to fight the Lord's battles. It's been a part of my daily praying for the last month because the Lord's convicted me of wanting to fight the Lord's battles. I had a little conversation with David Jones this morning because the words were uttered to a man named David in the Bible by King Saul that he wanted David to fight the Lord's battles. And I hope that young man and everyone in between want to fight the Lord's battles. And if you have the name of David, you should be fighting the Lord's battles. Right. I want to help you put five smooth stones in your shepherd's scrip. A shepherd's scrip was a little bag that a shepherd wore, carried with him over his shoulder, attached to his belt, in which he would have needful things for him in his travels. And David, when he went to meet Goliath, went down to the brook that ran between the two camps of the armies of the Israelites and the Philistines and gathered himself five smooth stones because he was hoping for a family reunion of the pagans of the Philistines. He didn't think that he was going to, he might miss with the first four and he'd need the fifth stone for Goliath. He was hoping that the sons of the giant would come along with daddy and he could take all five of them out. And I want to help put five smooth stones in your shepherd's script. Because if you were to meet with a polished preterist, you might have yourself some difficulty. But I want to give you some smooth stones. And I hope that you'll remember from the research that our brother David did in the second, third row on the right, some time ago about those slings, the size of stones that David threw were near the size of a billiard ball. And they had to be smooth so that they weren't weird-shaped stones because they're going to catch air and be diverted on their path. And men could sling those stones a quarter of a mile. And men could hit small objects. And David took five stones hoping for a family reunion. Right. Don't you love our brother? Amen. He had his mistakes, but do you know why his mistakes are recorded in Scripture to comfort you? Because you've had yours. And I've had mine, but I want to fight the Lord's battles. So you want to fight? I'm going to help you, and I'm going to train you for one. And we're going to rejoice because that's just one of the benefits. We are going to be excited about the importance of truth and the danger of not having the truth and of how being moved from the truth can leave you on quicksand that the more you struggle without the foundation of truth, you sink deeper and deeper. It is terrible what happens when you make one wrong assumption in the Word of God. Let me remind you very briefly, if you make the false assumption that baptism saves, does that get you into some trouble? Oh, yeah. If baptism is necessary for eternal life, you start baptizing babies in case they might die in childhood. If baptism is necessary for eternal life, you start baptizing by sprinkling when there isn't a whole lot of water available to dip a person. If baptism is necessary for eternal life, you'll invent intrauterine, that's called in utero, baptisms of the Catholic in order to baptize babies before they might miscarry. 
If you believe that baptism is necessary for salvation and you're a Mormon, then you're going to have baptism for the dead so that you can get your dead relatives into heaven so you're baptized by proxy for them. Do you understand that all those horrible heresies, the first two of which, infant baptism and sprinkling, are practiced by 95% of those that call themselves Christians, flow from one false assumption. Baptism saves. Do you you understand that? So I'm telling you the importance of truth. We're going to rejoice in the importance of truth. We are going to have a review of Bible hermeneutics, where the rubber meets the road on how to study the Bible. We're going to have a review of prophecy, and that should excite you, for those of you that like prophecy. We're going to see some hope, because we're going to be talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And based on what the Lord has shown us, there is a timetable. But do you want to know what end of that timetable we're at? It's not the front end. It's at the back end. And it's at the way back end. Thank you, Lord. Our trust is in Thee. But we're going to believe that rule of Bible hermeneutics for timing the Lord's second coming that was found in 2 Peter 3.8. That one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And do you know why a thousand years can take place when the Lord might have said a day? Because He loves you and He's granting you some long suffering. And I hope that was visible in the ninth verse and the fifteenth verse. There is an explanation for why God's timing is not your timing, because He's giving you a chance to repent. Thanks be to God. Isn't that glorious? We're going to see it all. We're going to answer it all. The Lord willing. We want the hope of the gospel made fresh to our hearts and our minds. I want you to appreciate the role of ministers and the amount of study that it takes to properly answer some questions. I want you to understand how or when we would ever change a doctrine and how we would go about doing it. I want to fight any delusionment that any of you might have that the truth cannot be identified. That when there's all these different isms out there, how do we know that we have the truth? Can it, can it be made clear enough and plain enough that we know that we have the truth? Amen. That's one of our goals. And I thank you for the last two to three weeks. Preterism. It's the ancient heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus. And I'll refute it by the word of God for those who hold the testimony of Jesus. Many years ago, this church communed with a couple of closet preterists. 25 years ago, I ran into this heresy when I bought this book. This is their Bible. This is written by their champion. It was first published in 1878. The Perusia, Greek word for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, means nothing, but it evokes senses of magic among those who don't want to use English. It doesn't mean anything but the second coming of Jesus Christ. We use English. If you're going to lie to me, lie to me in English, but don't lie to me in Greek. The Perusia. J. Stuart Russell, 1878. A preterist. Nearly a full preterist, but even he couldn't go all the way like they are today. 25 years ago, the Lord led me to purchase this book and to read it and save me from its errors. And help me to rightly divide the word of truth. There's no division of the word of God to a preterist. None at all. Right. And there's a reason for that. And you're all going to rejoice when you find out where Second Timothy 2.15 lies in just a moment. 
And you're going to be faithful listeners by not turning to it right now. But that was 25 years ago and I thank God. It's no new doctrine. I haven't preached on it because so few believe it. You have to totally lose your confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ to ever believe it because it turns the New Testament upside down. My brother Paul got involved with it 20 years ago. Not that he believed it, but because he had debated the Church of Christ on the subject of Easter, and because of a particular visitor that attended the church in Farmington Hills 20 years ago, my brother began to debate by writing some preterists among the Church of Christ, including the Church of Christ champion Max King, who began the recent revival of preterism in 1971. And Paul found his files yesterday when I asked him just to check to see if he still had them. And we're thankful to God that we ran into this heresy, but it's pretty easy to show, although it takes a lot of work because it infects and affects and corrupts the whole New Testament to show it wrong at every point. But we'll try to do that. And if I don't leave it here in your presence verbally, it will be in an outline that's been worked on. I hope that any of you that care and have not read it before or haven't read it in a while will read Woodrow's book to reestablish yourself in the historicist approach to Bible prophecy. That's the blue book that we have, and it's right over here, and I'll get you more, but you all should have read it, and it's called Great Prophecies of the Bible by Ralph Woodrow. Four chapters, the 70 weeks of the rapture first, and the 70 weeks of Daniel and Daniel 9, then Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and then the Antichrist, or the little horn of Daniel 7, or the man of sin that you read about in Second Thessalonians 2, I would encourage you to read that to refresh yourself and be established in the truth. Right. Preterism is from the Latin word praetor, meaning past. Has all Bible prophecies fulfilled by 70 A.D. at Jerusalem's destruction. When I say... All Bible prophecies fulfilled in 70 A.D., I mean all, and that's all, all means in this case. You can't ask me about a single word from the New Testament without them saying it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. You know, we have waxed loud and long against the futurists. Because the futurists put everything out in the future and don't see the fulfillment to hardly any prophecies. The preterists are in the opposite ditch, and it's a far worse ditch. Yes. I'll prove that to you. It's a damnable heresy. Amen. It's an anti-Christian heresy. Right. The preterists put everything in 70 A.D. And here we go down the road of what we hope is the road of truth, and we believe it's the road of truth, trying to avoid the ditches on both sides. But there's an ism on our left hand, And it's futurism, and there's an ism on our right hand, and it's preterism. And we're trying to go between the two of them with historicism. Explained more in a moment. Preterism, from the Latin word praetor, meaning past, has all the Bible prophecies fulfilled by 70 A.D. at Jerusalem's destruction. The Lord Jesus Christ returned the second time. The great day of judgment occurred. The devil and his angels were cast into the lake of fire. The resurrection of the dead occurred. The new heavens and the new earth were instituted, and you are in them. 
And depending on which category of preterist you're talking to, and they vary greatly, like heresies must, because there is no place to go for the answers, you are either in your glorified body right now, or you are going to get it when you go to heaven, but it will not be the body from a cemetery, because there is no resurrection from the dead. Because it already occurred. You'll be getting a new body. Now that's embodiment of spirits. But that is not a resurrection of the dead. We believe exactly what the Bible says. The Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and He was able to hold out the very body that was put in that tomb and show them the very marks on that very body and He ate and drank with them. He was not a spiritual illusion. It was the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and He is the first fruits of them that slept, Him in His time and then we at His coming will be just like that. This scheme of prophetic interpretation is little known. Most Christians would be shocked to hear what I just said to you. That Jesus Christ has already come back to earth. The resurrection of the dead has already taken place. The day of judgment's already occurred. And so that all those prophecies are just ripped right out of the Bible. You're not gonna, you're not gonna have to give an account of your life before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already taken place 2,000 years ago. There isn't a word left in the New Testament for you. Because they take the pronouns of the New Testament, and when Paul says, we shall be changed, they take that to prove, this is their, one of their errors of Bible hermeneutics, that we means that the change had to have occurred in the lifetime of Paul and his audience. Because it says, we shall be changed. You say, that's pitiful. Yes, we'll show it. Due to the faith of some being overthrown by a few noisy heretics, we want to refute and condemn this false teaching in a number of different ways. Now take your Bibles and look with me at 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three, And I hope you want to fight the Lord's battles. Amen. The devil never gives up, even though he's destroyed for all legal, practical purposes, and he will be finally absolutely thrown in the lake of fire. He doesn't give up. He came after Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the Apostle Paul says he follows the same approach with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, bringing another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. Do you remember in your reading last night of 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul said, don't you listen to any other word or spirit that would differ from me on the timing of the second coming. It is a distant event. It is not at hand. Okay, I hope you remember that. 1 Corinthians 15. What's 1 Corinthians 15 about? What are all 58 of its verses about? The resurrection of the dead. Is the resurrection of the dead a spiritual thing? No. Is it a figurative thing? Is it a literal thing? Is it talking about bodies in this chapter? It's all over. It's 2,000 years over. I want you to notice about a verse that we use often with our children, but it's for, a do- it's for doctrinal purposes. Right. Verse 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You know, we use that verse for its principle, but I want to tell you its primary focused intent. There were teachers at the church in Corinth that were denying the resurrection of physically dead bodies. And this 
is the evil communications. Why are you putting up with preachers like that? They're going to corrupt your good manners. What are your good manners? Believing the gospel that there's hope because there are great things coming. Frank, you're going to get a new body. So am I. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You shouldn't read. You shouldn't listen. And I don't believe in censorship very often. But you should not communicate with false doctrine. You shouldn't read it. You shouldn't study it. It's dangerous. The devil's behind it. The Bible tells us right here. Even though they were teachers in the church at Corinth, throw them out! How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Look at the poor apostle. Verse 12, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, because that's what Paul and all the apostles preached, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's evil communications. Get away from them. Don't listen to them. You hardly ever hear anything like that from me, but I'm giving you a warning. It's dangerous to read or listen to false teachers. It will corrupt your good manners. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And verse 8, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're just going to take our time, and I know some of you will be a little disappointed with me, but I've got to take my time because some of you have never even heard of preterism. You can't even believe that someone would believe something that crazy. I know. That's why I've hardly ever talked about it except to mention it when we're on Bible prophecy. But I'm thankful that I was able to do something that I know I should have done 25 years ago, but I didn't have the time to do, but I made the time the last three weeks. And there's 40 pages of it so far. Second Peter chapter 3. There's a lot of work to be done because they turned the whole New Testament upside down. Second Peter 3.8 But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Do you know how much I'm thankful to the Holy Spirit of the living God for telling us particular, specific facts that we should keep in mind as rules of interpretation for the timing of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you appreciate this verse at all? If you can tuck this little jewel into your mind, you have a great answer for their house of cards that they call timing texts. God doesn't use language the way we use language when it comes to timing, especially the timing of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because He's being long-suffering toward us, as you read. But remember, the Lord uses verb tenses differently than we do. Can He say, and them He justified, them He also glorified? Were they glorified yet? Why did He use the past tense? Oh, we have more. We have so much more. Some of you that love the Word of God, you're going to have a great deal of pleasure with me over the next few weeks. Amen. A great deal of pleasure. Why did he say, I have made thee a father of many nations, when Abraham didn't even have a son by Sarah yet? Because God doesn't listen to Church of Christ preachers and preterist timing texts. <laughs> that verse right there that I just gave you, and I'm not even reading it all, I just wanted to show you, We're supposed to stay away from evil communications, which is false doctrine and its teachers. And we are supposed to remember an essential fact that helps us in the timing of the second coming of the... Is that the context here? The timing of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that a day to Him is as a thousand years because I'm going to confess for all of us together 
We need more than a day to get right with God sometimes. Right. If you know what I mean. I'm thankful for his long suffering. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be back to these places in detail. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I just want to point out some, some important fundamental principles of approaching the study of a heresy. Evil communications corrupt good manners. That was 1 Corinthians 15, 33. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. I wonder if that's important to remember. I thank our brother Peter for writing it by the Holy Spirit just that way. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. Don't you be deceived about the order of the events that are coming. What are the order of events right here? There's three events. A falling away which is an apostasy away from the truth, a general widespread defection from the truth of the apostles. Two, the man of sin or the Antichrist is revealed. Three, Jesus Christ can come back. What were you taught all your life? The same thing I was taught all the previous part of my life. Jesus comes first, and then the Antichrist, and they don't really have a place for the falling away. Most of you have heard that one. Right, Mark? Isn't that what they teach at the world's most unusual university? Let no man deceive you by any means. We have, we have a text right here that takes us right down the road of truth. We've got the futurists on one side that get the order, that, that, that misorder the events that are coming. And we've got another ditch on the other side that says, the, Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to happen within 40 years. And Paul says, don't be troubled. or That thing is, isn't even close. It's not at hand. We've got some major events that have to take place before Jesus can come. So it saves us from both ditches. But all I want are the words right now, let no man deceive you by any means. One more. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. Paul to Timothy in a pastoral epistle. But shun, get away from, ignore and reject. Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. We want to get away from false teaching of heretical doctrines because it will increase unto more ungodliness. It is ungodliness, it is profane, and it is vain. And do you know what doctrine is under consideration right here in this text? Well, why don't I just keep reading, though it isn't my purpose at this point. Verse 17, in their word, that is the vain babblings and profane babblings of ungodly men, their word will eat as doth a canker, like a cancer or gangrene consumes your body, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. Well, Paul, what was their heresy? What was their doctrinal error? Who concerning the truth have erred. They are in error. They are heretics. Saying that the resurrection is past already. And overthrow the faith of some. Now isn't that wonderful? That we have the first preterist named in our King James Bible. Amen. And it's Hymenaeus. And so we call it the Hymenaean heresy, if you want a name for it. They call it preterism. We'll call it Hymenaean heresy. That the resurrection is past. He had to play with the doctrine of the resurrection because it was visible and obvious to any that bodies hadn't come out of the ground. Let's just think through it. 
You know, they would have known whether all the cemeteries had been ripped up or not. Since they hadn't, then he had altered what resurrection meant in order to put the resurrection in the past in Paul's day. And we should believe that this is part of the doctrine or associated with it that that crept into the church at Corinth, that they were denying the resurrection of the dead because they were denying the physical resurrection of physically dead bodies, that they were going to be raised, and those bodies were going to come out of the ground. These are warnings to us. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Let no man deceive you by any means. And shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. I want to tear this house of cards apart twelve different ways. After some introduction and conclusion, we're going to show that it denies the gospel of Jesus Christ, that its timing texts are a bunch of fallacies. We're going to refute it by Daniel. We're going to refute it by Paul. We're going to refute it by Peter, by Catholicism, by history, by the Gentiles, by itself, by Scripture, by futurism, and then show that it is an anti-Christian heresy. Futurism. Listen, compared to a preterist, I can have fellowship. I don't mean communion. And I don't mean church membership with a futurist. Those crazy futurists who are writing science fiction novels all the time, they don't deny the faith. They just have some things out of order. I'm going to show you that. Futurists still believe in a physical, visible, literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Futurists still believe in a physical resurrection of the dead. Futurists still believe in a day of judgment where we shall all give an account to God. Futurists believe in a renovation of the heavens and the earth so that there is a new heaven and a new earth. That is terribly different from preterism. Preterism denies all those things. A preterism has not denied the gospel of Jesus Christ in those essential principles. I'll show you from the Bible. Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3 lists certain principles of the doctrine of Christ and two of them are the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Right. Futurists grant both of those. Preterists deny them both. We assume that God is. Remember the old assumptions we make when we approach any study? And that God gave Scripture. Revelation is the means of truth, not rationalization about it. Scripture is absolute truth. It's the final place that we go for the answers to know the truth of any matter. So we don't give any place for tradition, except it's apostolic. We don't have any use for creeds. Personal beliefs, feelings, popularity, complexity of a doctrine, simplicity of a doctrine, or any other source. We just want to go with Scripture. The King James Version is what we believe is Scripture. Now it's important. In every issue where there's heretics involved and they're trying to argue in a point, they'll change Scripture. I brought myself a a New King James Version today. If you'll turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to read a verse there that has an important combination of words. And I'm going to read it from the New King James Version. We believe that the King James Version is Scripture and that we can argue our King James Version at the word level. And we've proven that numerous times. And when I used to say we had eight examples, we now have 16. Where the New Testament makes single word arguments Well, isn't that exciting? Each one of those is like a precious jewel to me. I have a treasure chest at home. I have a treasure chest in my head. 
And I'm thankful for those. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read it to you in your King James Bibles. Paul is comforting this church and correcting their erroneous assumption because he had spent so much time in the first epistle telling them about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were troubled and wondering if it was immediately to happen. And so by reading the whole epistle, it looks like they had quit their jobs. They were busybodies going from house to house. They weren't working. That's what chapter 3 is all about. Did that ever happen before in the history of the world? Did anybody do it just in the last 12 months with Harold Camping making them think that the Lord Jesus Christ was returning? Did some people quit their jobs and sell their stuff? Did it happen in 1843 and 1844 with the Adventist movement? So we're not surprised. So the apostle said, We beseech you, brethren, this is verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Don't quickly get yourself into trouble thinking that Jesus Christ's return is imminent. It's still a long way off. We've got some big events to get in before He can even come back. Those words at the end of that second verse, at hand, are very important to us. Because Paul is saying the second coming of Jesus Christ is not at hand. The second coming of Jesus Christ is not going to occur soon. The second coming of Jesus Christ is a distant event. Do you think preterists like this verse? Of course not. So what did the preterist and the New King James Translation Committee do? Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The New King James Version says that the problem in Thessalonica was that they believed the second coming had already occurred. And does that allow a preterist right back into the passage? Because it's still 17 years away when 2 Thessalonians was written from 53 A.D. to 70 A.D. Are you with me or is that too complicated? The New King James Version says that the Thessalonians were all worked up and upset and troubled because they thought the second coming had already passed. And so a preterist can give them an answer and a preterist can say that Paul was a preterist in that all he said in that verse was, it was not already passed, because it was still 17 years away. Am I making it clear enough? I wish I was better at explaining things verbally. This, this subject deserves a PowerPoint presentation of about a thousand slides, but I haven't done that because I, I didn't have enough time. I, do you understand how they have changed the Word of God? The apostle is dealing with, in a King James Bible that the Thessalonians were stirred up and troubled that Jesus Christ's coming was near when it was not. This one says that it was past, and a preterist can say it was 17 years away. There's no room for a preterist in a King James Bible. In order to be a preterist, you've got to jettison the King James Bible in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we believe the King James Bible is Scripture. We believe that God gave the rules for Bible interpretation. 
inside the Bible. We believe God called men to interpret the Bible, and we're thankful for that. Satan's at war against God and truth, and he hates the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's done all that he can to overthrow the gospel. He overthrew God's word in Genesis chapter 3 by first questioning it. Yea, hath God said, and then changing it. And how much did he change it? If we talk about degrees, did he change it 15 degrees, 60 degrees, or 180 degrees? Thou shalt not surely die. If we use percentages, did he change it 5% or 100%? Thou shalt not surely die. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming. We've sung it this morning. You know, a preterist can't sing, it is well with my soul, because they don't believe the fourth verse. A preterist can't practice baptism, except as a hypocrite, because baptism is, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Do you see all the terrible problems you get into once you make a false assumption? They can't practice the Lord's Supper, Because the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul declare to the Lord's Supper, as long as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. But He's already come. So anytime a preterist gets baptized or talks about baptism or takes the Lord's Supper, it's they're just being a hypocrite. And yet they sit in churches that practice baptism and the Lord's Supper and don't ever raise their hand and say, we shouldn't be doing that anymore. In fact, no one should have been doing it for the last 1900 years. Are you with me? I made that point from this point. God said, thou shalt surely die. Satan said, yea, hath God said. And then Satan said, thou shalt not surely die. A 180 degree change in God's gospel or God's message to Adam and Eve and a 100% alteration. The devil tried to take the Lord Jesus Christ down in Matthew chapter 4. And when Peter stood up one time and said, Be it far from thee, Lord, that you would ever be crucified. What did Jesus have to say? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God. And there are things of God that God has in store for us that are the, that are the gifts and the blessings and the rewards He's going to give His adopted children that they try to take away from us. Futurism. There's three schools of prophetic interpretation. There are others. There's idealism, where nothing in the Bible is real. It's just a description of the conflict between good and evil. I'm not, forget it. Nobody believes that except liberals that we never even encounter. There's an eclectic approach to Bible prophecy, but we're going to forget that. There's three schools because I want to make it simple, and this covers 98% of the people you'll ever meet. The futuristic school is generally all prophecies are in the future. This is the rapture crowd of C.I. Schofield, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, and Van Empey. This is the Left Behind series. They are generally pre-tribulationary, meaning Jesus returns before the Great Tribulation, and they are pre-millennial, meaning Jesus comes pre-before the millennium. And they're Zionists. They love Israel, the state of Israel over there in the Middle East, and they believe the Jews are superior to Gentiles, even under the New Covenant, and they shall be restored to their preeminence in their so-called millennium. The scheme for a futurist is that sometime in the future, Jesus is coming back in a secret rapture. 
And that secret rapture, all the Christians are going to disappear out of the earth. Planes are going to crash. Cars are going to crash. Everywhere where someone's depending upon a Christian, it's going to fail. Because Jesus has come back in a secret rapture. Then, after that, there's a seven-year tribulation. And somewhere in that tribulation, usually in the middle, the Antichrist comes into power and persecutes people and and sets up a temple and an abomination in Jerusalem, Israel. Then Jesus comes the third time at the end of the seven-year tribulation, destroys the Antichrist, gets himself a chair in Jerusalem, Israel, and reigns a thousand years on earth. They rebuild altars and have animal sacrifices to God again. For a thousand years, the Jews of the preeminent race and us Gentiles are sort of their brethren and sort of their servants. And then Jesus comes the fourth time as he destroys the sinners that are still in the world during that thousand year millennium. That's futurism. You know when they go to Matthew 24 and they read about the abomination of desolation, it never crosses their mind that there was an event in 70 A.D., for Matthew 24. It doesn't even cross their mind. The whole thing is to be chucked way out in the future. When they read Daniel 9 and they run into the conflict of a 490 year prophecy that was issued in the year 456 BC, that means it ends in 34 AD. When they run into something like that, they stick a gap into it because there's no way it can be true without a gap. That's how committed they are to futurism. Now, we've been there before. It's amazing, isn't it? When they get to 2 Thessalonians 2, C.I. Schofield, realizing the order of events here is entirely out of his order, says, as he opens up that epistle with an introduction to it, that it is terrible that we have such wording in our common translation of the Bible for 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so he makes... He makes the day of Christ at the end of chapter 2 not the rapture but the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation, so that he identifies a second and a third coming. There's the coming of the Lord for his saints, and there's the coming of the Lord with his saints. Ever heard that distinction? It's so sweet. Do you know what drives them? Everything has to be in the future. So they're down there in their ditch. How? They can't even see the road of truth. All they know is that they want to fill their ditch with other people that are looking forward to a Star Wars finale for the universe sometime in the future. Then there's another ditch. Preterism. Generally, all Bible prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD. They call their doctrine full preterism, consistent preterism, or realized eschatology. Eschatology is the seminary word for Bible prophecy. Future things, the doctrine of future things. They call it realized eschatology because every prophecy in the Bible has been realized. Okay, and that's what they call it. Most Christians have never heard of it due to its recent popularity and very few followers. With their timing verses, they bind every prophecy to Jerusalem's destruction, even prophecies that don't have time limitations. Let me show you. Are you ready? Get your Bibles. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. Here's how they do it. I'll give you a sample. Matthew 10, 23. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. 
chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. Did you see that? Jesus told the apostles that they wouldn't be able to fully evangelize every city and town in Israel before Jesus had come the second time. That's what they assume it's saying. Sounds like it. Sounds good. All sound bites sound good. That's why they're called sound bites. Matthew 16, 27 and 28, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. Matthew 24, 34, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass, Till all these things be fulfilled. Romans chapter 13. Just going to give you a sample. There's over a hundred. I'm dealing with each one of them one by one, well after we lay the principles and foundation that overthrow preterism, because there's good answers for all these verses, because all these verses have been understood a different way for 2,000 years than the way they make them understood. Revelation, I mean Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Romans 16:20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Philippians chapter 4, and verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. James chapter 5. Verse 8. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. 1 John 2.18 Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must Shortly come to pass. Verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 10, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Verse 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. Verse 20, 
He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. There's over a hundred of them. I just gave you a sample of them. And they will mount these verses and they call them their timing texts. See, what liberals have done for 2,000 years, for basically the last 1,000 years, and especially the last couple hundred years, liberals have said, look at all those words of imminency for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He never came after 2,000 years. The Bible can't be true. And so the preterists say, and this is not the only reason they hold their position, but we've got an answer for the liberals. Well, we have an answer for the liberals. It's explaining those verses, and it's taking things like 2 Peter 3.8 and never forgetting it, because the Holy Spirit told you to never forget it. And beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, if if the Lord tells you, Not to be ignorant of that rule right there in a discussion of the timing of the second coming. Is that rule important? Well, we have an answer for all these timing texts. And it's a whole lot more than I'm giving you right now. It will take sermons. But we are going to tear their house of cards of timing texts to shreds. Because it is the imminency of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that the church has believed for 2,000 years while God in His long-suffering gave us an opportunity to repent. They've always thought that it was imminent. They were always expectant of it because the Lord worded it in such a way to encourage us that there's hope for us in this world. This is how they do it. They take those verses from Matthew to Revelation and say, there's only one coming. There's only a second coming. And since it's got to happen in that generation, and some of them will be, will still be alive when it happens, and Jesus is coming quickly, and it's at hand and all that stuff, there's only a one second coming. It had to have occurred in 70 AD. Then they make the whole New Testament fit 70 A.D. The whole New Testament fit 70 A.D. by taking the sledgehammer of their so-called timing text and mashing anything that gets in their way. If 1 Corinthians 15 gets in their way with resurrection of dead bodies, then they make that the resurrection of the New Covenant. They spiritualize the whole chapter away they'll make it some spiritual resurrection that took place in 70 A.D. Romans chapter 8, the renovation of the new heavens and the new earth, where it says that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now, and the creature is in bondage, the creature is the rest of humanity. In 70 A.D., humanity was delivered from the bondage that it's under. That is universalism, and that's where most preterists full preterists end up. Universal salvation. Because when you have to take passages like that, Romans 8, and spiritualize it toward humanity, humanity being the creature, do you remember how many times and how much time I spent with you saying, what is the creature? What is the creature? What is the creature? So that you would know Romans chapter 8. They end up as universalists. That's preterism. 
Amazingly, they hold that events Christians have always taught were future actually happened by 70 A.D. Everything that you can imagine. Jesus Christ's return, the resurrection of the dead, the day of judgment, the destruction of Satan, the millennium, the new heaven and the new earth. Isn't it wonderful how they can get a thousand years in between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D.? Doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter that Revelation chapter 20 says a thousand years. Bam! It says at the end of this book, I come quickly, and it says things which must shortly come to pass in the first verse. Just take the Word of God for what it plainly says. The Bible says what it means and means what it says. Historicism is what they would call us. All we want to be is Bible Christians. Historicism generally means that prophecy is fulfilled in history. It's not all future. It's not all past. It's been, some's been fulfilled. Some is being fulfilled. Some will yet be fulfilled. Many prophecies are in different categories there. This is the position held by most Christians over the last 2,000 years. Some variety of historicism. It rejects futurism and preterism. In, in general, we see Matthew 24 fulfilled, but Matthew 25 future. It sees a present man of sin in the papacy and a present gospel millennium, but a future return of Jesus Christ, a future resurrection of dead bodies, a future day of judgment before the future new heavens and new earth. The Word of God is going to bless you as you see how thoroughly the Lord has given us very concrete and specific and multiplied witnesses that they are wrong and their use of the timing text is a horrible hermeneutical error because it's an assumption they make that forces them into the untenable, undesirable position of ramming a thousand-year millennium, the renovation of the heavens and the earth, the day of judgment, the lake of fire, the casting of the devil and his angels into the lake of fire, the resurrection of all dead bodies, good and evil, into 70 A.D. by making an error with those timing texts. And do you know why God gave those timing texts? To trip them up and lead them into that error because they were not content with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Why are there verses in the Bible that sound like baptism saves? There are seven of them. Why are there multiplied verses that sound like you can lose eternal life? so that people can run astray on baptism by not coming to the Word of God and humbling themselves before it and looking to the simplistic, foolish baptism of our Lord and all those that followed Him. I hope you can remember, is God the author of confusion? Because He is the author of confusion. If you do not humble yourself and appreciate what God has given you, and appreciate God's minister preaching you the Word of God, and appreciate the gospel that's been held by Christians for 2,000 years, He will let you believe something else. And He will provide in His Word the stumbling blocks for that. The Jews did not want to accept Jesus of Nazareth as their Lord and Savior. The Bible says that He was a stumbling block to them, whereunto they were appointed. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8. Thank you for your kind attention. May God bless us to rejoice in what we have. And by the time I get done, though you may be a little rattled right now or a little wondering how plain will it really be, it'll be plain. 
And you'll be excited to know as we think again about the wonderful things that are coming. Jesus is going to be seen visibly, literally, physically, bodily in our atmosphere. There will be a resurrection of every dead body of the just and the unjust. And the quick and the dead will stand before God and give an account of their lives. And the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels at the same time. And the righteous will be accepted into heaven. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth that we are going to enjoy forever with our Lord. This is coming. And your job tomorrow and going to school tomorrow and eating in a few minutes while they're pleasant, while they're needful, while they're necessary, and while they help us with our little lives here are nothing in comparison. And we want to keep our focus on the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is called the blessed hope of the believer. We want to be looking for it, and we want to be loving it, because there is a crown of life for those that love His return, and that are looking for it. And he that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. Because to think of standing before God, and my dear wife of 35 years and I talked about that on our vacation, the two of us, standing there before the Lord, recognizing each other, but no longer being husband and wife, and giving an account of our marriage and our lives and our souls, our children, to the Lord, it's coming. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to save us all with an everlasting salvation. May the Lord be praised by the preaching of His Word.